0: You're listening to Episode 20 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat.
1: Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children
0: with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Episode 20 of Chat About Children, where we chat about all things children and support and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today we are chatting about shyness, And selective mutism, a really, really interesting topic to talk about. Shyness, we all know what shyness is and often we hear someone being labeled as shy or being a little bit shy. Um, But Selective mutism is something that is not commonly heard. Certainly, I hear hear it a lot professionally, um, but today is really about understanding what that relationship is between shyness and selective mutism and understanding what the difference is. I'm joined by a clinical psychologist who's going to share the difference between the two and also help us learn the best way to respond to a child um, who is experiencing shyness or selective mutism. My guest also covers some fantastic practical strategies that we can start using immediately to support children to really make the best progress that they can. So let's start the chat. Joining me today for a chat, Elizabeth Woodcock. She's a clinical psychologist and director of the Selective Mutism Clinic in St. Leonard's, which is in Sydney, Australia. The clinic provides treatment for children and adults in her general private psychology practice. Elizabeth completed her training at the University of New South Wales, and she later worked with children with severe psychiatric conditions at Westmead Hospital. Her clinic, the Selective Mutism Clinic, provides regular training seminars for parents and schools, supervision for professionals, and treatment for children with selective mutism in Sydney, as well as for children throughout Australia through their outreach program. Over the past 15 years, Elizabeth has seen or supervised more than 500 children with selective mutism through her clinic. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. It's fantastic to have you here.
1: Thank you, Sonia. It's lovely to have a chat with you about selective mutism.
0: Absolutely. And it is an area that I'm excited to get more people aware of because it is, well, I think it's common enough, but I do work with children, so I see it more often than a regular individual, I guess. But I would love to, before we delve into selective mutism, love to delve into a little bit about what it was that led you, Elizabeth, to clinical psychology and then more specifically, what was it that interested you to specialise in working with children with selective mutism?
1: Well, I was actually interested in something a bit different initially that led me into studying psychology. So I was actually interested in the role that a child's early environment plays in building their intelligence. So I ended up studying psychology And as I went through psychology, I just became fascinated in clinical psychology. So my original plans got put to the side and I ended up doing a master's and a PhD in clinical psychology and loved it. And then... What got me into selective mutism, at university, we actually barely learned anything about selective mutism. We just learned about the diagnostic criteria, so how to diagnose it. But it wasn't until my first job at Westmead Hospital, where I was working mostly with children with severe behavioural disorders, and finding that a little bit repetitive. And there was someone there who was seeing a lot of kids with selective mutism, and they were looking for someone to help them take up some of the load and they asked around to see if anyone was interested in treating these kids and I thought that's great that's a breath of fresh air from the kids with behavioural disorders and I put up my hand and I started getting into it that way and everything has been building ever since.
0: Yeah fantastic that is fantastic. So let's start by asking the basic question of what exactly is selective mutism?
1: So it is an anxiety disorder So we know that these kids do feel anxious when they're put in a situation where they're expected to speak. They can speak freely and normally when they're around their family or in other non-social situations. But when they're in a social situation and typically school, and such as with their school teacher or with their peers, they feel so anxious that they're just unable to talk.
0: Yes. And I guess a lot of us would refer to that as shy. Like I know for me, clinically, sometimes parents will say, oh, you know, like he's Jack, but just be aware that Jack's quite shy. So they sometimes will introduce their child and put shy in the same sentence. And for me anyway, I kind of think, oh, I don't know if that's such a great idea to introduce them that way, because does that then make the child feel like they need to Behave in a shy manner? Like, is that a good or bad way to introduce your child? I mean, what are your thoughts around that? Because it is a common thing that people do say.
1: Yeah, I don't have too much of an issue with the word shyness because I think shyness just means this child's feeling anxious. But as long as that's communicated to the child in a way that you don't always have to be shy, and there's actually strategies that we can use to help you to feel more relaxed and help you to communicate more. So if parents talk to me about shyness, I usually just say, yes, shyness is anxiety in a social situation. And selective mutism is like an extreme form of shyness where they're so shy that they can't even muster a word to respond to someone. Whereas kids who are just shy can normally be able to respond a little bit to someone, even if it's one or two words.
0: Okay. So is that the key difference between a child who's excessively shy and selective mutism, is that the key difference? If a child can just get a little bit of a response out, whether it's verbal or non-verbal, or does it have to be verbal? Like what's the difference?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I think those kids who have extreme shyness or even social anxiety they're more worried about what people will think of them if they don't say anything at all. So if you give them a little bit of time, they'll generally be able to say something, whereas kids with selective mutism have almost learnt that the mutism is a strategy to manage that really uncomfortable feeling of anxiety and they just don't seem to be able to respond at all in those situations.
0: Okay. So are there some early kind of telltale signs besides not talking? Because I think for some, and I have personal experience of this with one of my children, where I really had no idea that she wasn't speaking in the childcare setting. She's a very chatty, happy child at home. I just assumed everything was fine and had no idea that she just didn't say a word to any of the educators. And so, yeah, I just had no clue. So, I guess I look back and I think, should I have just asked more questions to the educator? Like, how could I have told any sooner than you know, kind of a couple of months down where they were like wondering about her expressive language? And I was like, "What do you mean? <laughs> She's really chatty." So, is there anything yeah. else like I could have noticed perhaps or asked?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really common experience that uh, parents say that the preschool didn't mention this to us until say a year down the track, and some parents find that really hard to understand. Like if my child hasn't been talking, why why didn't you actually say anything? So I think the onus is really on those early educators to let parents know when the child's not talking in that environment. You know, if it's gone past a few weeks of being in that situation, it's important for the parents to be told. But if you're not told, I guess some signs would be still the mutism in other social situations. So you might have visitors coming to your house or you might go to the shops and the child might not be able to talk to strangers when you're around but then I think you'd see other signs of extreme shyness as well you might have a child in a pram and someone might say hi and they might hide their head in the pram or you might find a play group that they're just shying away from the other kids and not wanting to join in play with the other kids It really does differ between different kids because some will be more fearful of adults and others will be more fearful of kids and others will be more fearful of everyone. Mm. So I think seeing those early signs of shyness are a flag, not necessarily meaning they have selective mutism, but just something to keep an eye on and a flag that it would be good to help socialise the child more.
0: Yes, excellent. So is there a typical age range that selective mutism is more common in?
1: Well, it presents in all kids around three years of age. So when they start to become more aware of themselves in that social environment and start to have ideas that other people might be looking at them or judging them. And so three to four years of age when they're first placed in those early childhood environments or preschools and then tends to become less common as age increases because parents will generally find a way for a lot of kids to get treatment or to help them themselves. So it becomes less common through primary school, high school. is fairly rare by the time you get to adulthood. So the most common age is three to four years
0: of age. Okay. And it sounds like because that is the time that they're becoming more aware of themselves and perhaps thinking or wondering what others might be thinking of them, that's the age that that kind of happens. Can an event or a stress or some kind of trauma ever trigger a child to experience selective mutism or are there other causes that might trigger it? What's your experience?
1: Yeah, the role of trauma is extremely unlikely. So the research shows that there's no inc- no more incidence of trauma in the background of these kids than there is in the general population. We know that stress for a child who has selective mutism, sometimes stress can make it worse. So there's been a few cases where kids have selective mutism And a stressful event has happened, which could even be going on holiday or a parent travelling a lot, coming in and out of the home, and that can actually cause the child to become mute with their family. So that's quite rare, though. But in terms of the general causes of selective mutism, we know that it's both environmental and genetic. So these kids tend to have one or both parents who say that they were anxious as a child, There's quite a high incidence of selective mutism in their close families as well when they were a child Mm -hmm. and social anxiety and other anxiety disorders. So definitely a strong genetic component, but there tends to be a lot of environmental factors as well. So that could just be people, teachers or parents or extended family who might place a little bit too much pressure on the child to communicate before they're ready to do so. Or it could be the opposite where people feel for the child and can see that they're anxious and so they just let them communicate in whatever way they can and don't set expectations or goals, small goals to communicate.
0: Okay. And then I
1: think I was just going to add I found in my own experience that there tends to be a whole group of factors that make these kids a little bit more self-conscious about talking So there's a really high proportion of kids who come from bilingual backgrounds or are bilingual themselves. So I think they're exposed to different languages. They are exposed to their parents having different accents and perhaps people not understanding their parents sometimes and saying, sorry, what was that? Can you say that again? So I think that makes the child more self-conscious about their own talking. And then there's about a third to a half who do actually have language problems so that could be just subtle articulation problems so pronouncing words or how they group words together in a sentence which is what we call expressive language problems so it's a bit like the chicken and the egg but I think those language issues make the child a bit more self-conscious about you know I can't find words quickly or I'm not saying words properly and then they feel more shy and more self-conscious about talking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we do see that quite a bit clinically when working with children. It's that balance of kind of setting them up for success so that they are achieving and building that confidence while they are you know, building the accuracy of their articulation or building those expressive language skills. So yeah, it is a careful balance, I guess. So when we're looking at parents and how to respond to their child. As we mentioned before, there's that initial kind of surprise when they discover that they haven't been speaking in another environment. And sometimes I find there there can be real frustration that parents experience as well, because they're like, what do you mean? They're just so happy and they're so chatty. And it can be very difficult for parents when they're not seeing their child in their true selves or their true form being expressed, say, in the in the education setting. And it's really hard for parents. So, do you have any advice that would help parents as to how to manage those emotions that they're feeling and the frustration they're feeling when they, they just want their child to be happy, obviously, in all their environments? What's that initial advice for parents?
1: Yeah, I think just firstly noticing that feeling that frustration is really normal. And even for health professionals, we're working with you know these gorgeous kids, knowing they can talk and seeing that they're not, it's really natural to feel frustrated. Um, so just To kind of log that, notice it, uh, but obviously not show that in any way to the child. So sometimes I even get parents to practice their own mindfulness strategies. Uh, So there's lots of lots of information out there on the net where parents can read about mindfulness and learn to notice their own emotions as it starts to build up, and learn strategies to kind of not let that show on the outside to the child. So just logging their frustration, but then. For the child, just validating how they must be feeling. So, I, I can see you feeling really worried and frustrated, um, really worried and anxious, and you know, that's understandable and that's okay to feel that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess that same advice is for professionals too. So, it's not just parents, it's certainly for professionals where um, you know they've got a child that they have to I guess interact with daily for some of them um, is having that patience using I guess feeling words or emotion words to acknowledge how the child might be feeling um, and not putting any pressure on them would they be some of the key aspects kind of to start yeah yeah Yeah. okay
1: absolutely so when we first work with a child we always say we understand it's hard for you to use your voice We, we know lots of kids like you who find it hard to use their voice and that it won't always be that way and that we have some ways that we can help you to be brave. Uh, we'll just take small steps at a time, and one day it will be easy for you for you to use your voice.
0: Fantastic. So we
1: don't let them off the hook and not put any pressure on them. And I actually like to use the words gentle pressure because mm. if we don't put any pressure on these kids to talk, they will just sit in a comfort zone and not progress So they do need some encouragement but those goals that we set them do need to be achievable small goals
0: yes yes that makes total sense so if someone does um, or when people do come to the selective mutism clinic what does an assessment entail what does it look like
1: we always conduct our assessments without the child so, this is different to the other presentations, um, you know, kids with other conditions that we work with. But I think for kids with selective mutism, it's really anxiety provoking to hear a parent and a professional talk about their talking, particularly if that's going to go on for about an hour. So, we always suggest um, that just the parents come along without the child and we get a really detailed history of um, their developmental history. Um, their um, medical history, the family history, such as the family's anxiety or other psychological issues, and then the child's communication in a range of settings, such as the shops and how do they communicate with their teacher and their friends and their friends when they're at their own house or their friends when they're at the park. And then I'm also looking for um, some of those environmental factors that might have made them feel more self-conscious about talking. So I'm asking about um, what is their language really like when they're at home? How have reactions been from the family or the preschool? How do the preschool teachers deal with this or manage it or help the child to start to join in activities and start to communicate? Um, And uh, looking at any bilingualism or other languages that are spoken in the family. Mm. So we get that really detailed history and from there it's going to start to help us start to plan the child's treatment. Um, And then the assessment does continue to the second session when we meet the child for the first time. But that way we've got all the background information so we can start the session just with a game, a non-verbal game with the child on the floor. So the parent is there, we're there with the child. We don't ask any questions at all. We just talk a lot. We describe how the child is playing the game. So we're chatting throughout the game and we're helping to put the child at ease and not make them feel that this is an environment where there's gonna be lots of questions.
0: Yeah, so a very non-threatening, relaxed kind of environment basically for the child. Um, And so after that, what does therapy look like?
1: So there's actually many components to therapy. Uh, The main component is obviously working on building the child's communication. And when we talk about communication, communication is not just verbal communication. So our priority is making the child um, be relaxed in a social situation and be able to do what they're expected to do. So some kids, for example, um, when it's group time at school and they're supposed to sit on the mat, some kids might not be able to even walk to the mat and they might just stand rigidly. Uh, So that's not doing what they're expected to do. So we would help them to be able to sit on the mat, at least look at the teacher when she's talking to the class, or sitting at their desk and doing their work. So that's also what we call pre-communication. So it's just doing what they're supposed to do before um, they can even start to non-verbally communicate. So then one of the main strategies is called sliding in. And this is a a strategy that's used worldwide for kids with selective mutism. And it's about putting them with someone they can communicate freely with, which is usually a parent, putting them either in the classroom on their own with their parents or in our therapy room with their parents. And we go outside and we close the door And sometimes the child places us at a a position they feel comfortable with. So I've been placed right outside my office, um, the whole office, (laughs) with the door closed up the hall near the Mm lifts. And the child goes back into the room and they play a game with their parents and they use their voice, using their vocal cords. So no whispering. They're expected to use their vocal cords. And if they can't, they just practice that over and over again until they can. And then we gradually slide closer. So sliding in means we might move half a metre or a metre at a time. And at each step, the child is continuing to use their voice with the parents. And eventually we can come in the room. We might be at the far end of the room with headphones on listening to music. And eventually those headphones come off and eventually we join the game on the floor with the child, still using their voice with their parents, And once the child can use their voice with us during that game, we then slide the parent out so the child's able to talk to us in the context of that game. And that's only the very beginning. So that's just getting the child to talk to us in the context of a game, but there's many, many more steps after that to get the child to be able to talk freely to us and then generalise to other people as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I just wanted to add that even though that sliding in is the main part of treatment There are many components to helping these kids, such as teaching them about anxiety and other emotions and how anxiety feels inside their body. We often work on building their confidence and their self-esteem, so strategies for parents to help build their self-esteem at home. And uh, often we work on behavioural issues as well, because often these kids don't just have difficulties managing anxiety, but they might have difficulties managing anger or frustration frustration and other feelings so teaching the parents some really sound behavior management strategies can help these kids then overall and it will then eventually help their communication as well
0: fantastic because ultimately your aim apart from the speaking in other environments comfortably it would be to empower that child to have those tools and that awareness um, themselves so they know how to apply some of those strategies does that sound about right
1: yeah, absolutely. So if they are in a situation um, not being able to talk to someone, but they can notice that their heart's racing and that their stomach has butterflies and they know to themselves, oh, this is just anxiety, then it demystifies those whole feelings and it actually makes them more capable of them working on the communication goals that we set them.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So are there any um, really common challenges or obstacles that do come up during therapy that come to mind?
1: Well, in our clinic, we run quite an intensive school program. So there's an expectation that the preschool teacher or the school teacher has regular sessions with the child, just 15 minutes long, but we generally recommend three a week. And through those sessions, they do the sliding in strategy and then build the child's talking. So one of the main challenges that we have is sometimes when teachers um, aren't able to um, provide that time for the child. Having said that, probably in about 90 to 95% of cases, the teachers are able to do that. So it's those 5% of, of cases where we do find that a challenge. And sometimes it's a challenge when the parent sort of says, well, the the child is talking freely at home. We don't have an issue at home. And they don't quite recognize the role that they can play with their child. So they might not work on homework exercises in between sessions. Um, But there's a lot that parents can do. So they can work on talking about emotions at home. And they can work on taking the child to shops and other activities and working on communication goals in those situations. So they would be our two biggest challenges and the teachers very very occasionally seeing this as stubbornness rather than an anxiety disorder so we do try and provide a lot of education for the teachers to help them understand that it isn't stubbornness it's not a behavioral disorder but there's still sometimes that small percentage that still really struggle to understand that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've got to say, as someone that's, um, again, experienced going through that process, um, it's it's really important to have everyone on the same page and working as a team. It really is a team-focused kind of therapy approach. And that, that does maximise the progress, ultimately. Um, so... If you've got any general practical strategies, we've mentioned a few already, but are there any other general practical strategies that you have to offer that you can share with us for parents um, who have children that, you know, parents might be listening thinking, I think my child might fit the selective mutism category. What are some general practical strategies that we could offer for them right now?
1: I think firstly, just to be able to label how your child's feeling. So just be able to say, I can see you feeling anxious and that's okay, I'm here with you and I'm I'm gonna help you. And then also to not let them avoid social situations. So to find a way to encourage them to join in, even if that means taking tiny, tiny steps, but approaching the social situations rather than avoiding them. And also approaching, helping them approach communication even if that means starting with some eye contact or starting with a small wave of their hand or even if they're capable of whispering an answer to their parents rather than uh, talking to someone directly. So if they're ordering ice cream uh, at a a shop and the child can't say to the person what flavour they'd like, the parent, even rather than pointing to the flavour, if the child's capable of just whispering in the parent's ear, then the parent can tell person behind the counter what they asked for, then that's a step in the right direction.
0: Fantastic. And they're really common. They're common like everyday scenarios that we have those opportunities to, to have that child just make those small steps, aren't they? Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of fantastic information. And I wonder right now, Elizabeth, if we have or if you have a take home message To our listeners, who are parents, carers and professionals working with children, what would be your your main take-home message?
1: I would say selective mutism, even though it's a complex anxiety disorder, it's treatable. That the younger the child is when you start treatment, the quicker and the easier it will be. So best not to wait. And also, if parents are trying to work out if their child has extreme shyness or or selective mutism, it really doesn't matter because the children will benefit from the strategies, um, whether they're shy or have selective mutism. And the strategies are all very similar as well. So if they can work towards helping the child work on those small goals for communication, the child will eventually become a confident communicator.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. You have been a wealth of knowledge and I'm looking forward to lots of kids kind of breaking through the shyness or selective mutism barrier. That's awesome. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thanks, Sonia.
0: Thanks, Elizabeth. And what a fantastic chat that was with Elizabeth Woodcock from the Selective Mutism Clinic. I do encourage you all to have a look at her website, selectivemutism.com.au. She has some fantastic resources on her website. It also lists some of the seminars that are offered. But I certainly do encourage you to check that out, selectivemutism.com.au. So coming up next episode, a little bit of a different topic coming up. We're going to look at the fascinating area of exercise and children. And we're going to really look at the truth behind it and debunk some myths when it comes to exercise and children. And we're also going to learn some really fascinating facts about the research that's been made in understanding the effects that exercise can have on children and really far reaching effects and benefits. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next episode. So make sure you tune in. Now, if you did enjoy this episode on shyness and selective mutism, please do share it with those that you think will benefit from the info, whether it's family, friends, or colleagues, please help to get the word out and share the Chat About Children podcast as well. Thank you for your attention today. I would love for you to leave a review as well if you're feeling motivated. Otherwise, I celebrate you. Take care and chat
1: soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich. (laughs) www.chataboutchildren.com